Hey listeners, it's Andy, and I'm here to see if you've tried Audible yet. With an incredible selection of audiobooks, it is the perfect way to dive deeper into the stories upon which some of your favorite films are based. Audible members get a credit every month to redeem on any audiobook they like, plus access to a huge plus catalog of podcasts, originals, and more. Just imagine listening to the books that inspired movies like The Bourne Identity, Moneyball, or sci-fi classics like Dune. The best part? You can try Audible free for 30 days and get your first audiobook on them. It's a great way to experience storytelling while supporting this podcast. To get started, go to thenextreel.com slash audible or text thenextreel to 500-500. Listen to incredible audiobooks and support the show today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Do, do you want to talk about it? Do you want to share? I don't. You Now, I have to ask you the question. You posted a picture on Facebook. Yes. That read a number that made me fantastically uncomfortable. <laughs> what? <laughs> I did. Yes, I, I did. I uh, I don't think I... I think that that's a, a number that, that you see, you know, in the Middle East, in the desert... And that was actually after it had dropped a degree. <laughs> now you it hit one twenty one. One twenty two, yeah. Oh, in my car. I mean, so that was that was in your car. Okay, that wasn't yeah. like an outside temperature. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how how much hotter my car got, but you know, maybe five degrees hotter than it was outside or something. Is it? I mean, how, how do you? Uh, what's the word? Um, live there. <laughs> Once it's at a certain point, it just is damn hot. <laughs> it's like once it's over 110, it's like, okay, it's hot, it's miserable. And even if it gets hotter, it's, it doesn't change that fact too much. So it's hard to, hard to, it's hard to tell beyond that. It just, you can still feel yourself cooking, really, is <laughs> what it's like. That's what it, that's what I imagine it to be yeah. like. You just feel yourself cooking. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh! Yeah, come try it sometime. No, of course not. <laughs> I, I, we had a comment. Uh, I read a comment on iTunes last week on the show about it was complimenting us on how rambling we are. <laughs> I guess that means we, all of this has been a part of our show. So far. of course, uh, and I wanted this is follow up. This is follow up to that. I, uh, I don't know if you saw this on the on our Facebook page, but uh, we we had a lovely comment uh, from uh, the actual commenter 
of iTunes. She said, uh, uh, thanks for the great podcast and for reading my rambling comment on the, quote, radio last week, uh, <laughs> signed April. And and I thought that was so kind that uh, not only was she kind enough to uh, listen and long enough to comment on iTunes, but was still listening long enough to hear the following week when we read her comment on the air. I, sh- I think that's a that's a sign that we've made it with this show. But she also follows up. The reason I'm saying this is not because I'm fishing for more compliments from the lovely April. She writes, uh, and this is for you to put on our to-do list. Mm. Uh, oh. All right. She says, how about now? I just want to this is I just want to set up the reaction. I just want to get the reaction. So take a deep breath. Close your eyes. She says, how about? A Coen Brothers series. Haven't we talked about that? I don't know. I don't even remember now. We've done so many of these things. <laughs> We've talked about that because I, I think we talked about when I said Big Lebowski and you said, no, you don't like that movie. I like so many of the other ones. Big Lebowski. I know I'm like the guy and, and I'm, a, I'm a geek and a nerd and I a Coen Brothers fan and I just don't like them. It's <laughs> so... <laughs> It's so, <laughs> I can't stay awake through oh, it. It's so dumb. My. I just can't get. Well, I'll try it again. I will do it again because this is a because I'm I want to. This is good. I want to be a part of a show that embraces counterculture. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and occasionally we have to do an episode that's movies I don't like. I'm okay with that. Well, we've done a few of those yeah. that, that we've both yeah. had hard times with, so that's okay. So the week that, you know, I'm watching Big Lebowski, you can go back and watch Crystal Skull again. That's all right. <laughs> oh, I, I think it is a great suggestion, April, and, and it is definitely on our list of, of series to do. Uh, and uh, we've got a couple we want to get through uh, leading up to an, some other big uh, summer hits that we have uh, scheduled to talk about. But then we're definitely, uh, Coen Brothers definitely on the list, so. That's coming. It's you know that's a great a great task to give to all our listeners. Go onto our Facebook page and tell us all of your favorite Coen Brothers movies, and we'll, we'll and and think know about that... <laughs> which ones might be worth talking about. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> yeah, we'll, so... we'll just see where the natural weighting uh, occurs. The Big Lebowski will be weighted maybe lower. <laughs> I have the password to the Facebook page. I'm just saying. That's right. <laughs> I uh, I look forward to hearing that, and I I um, you know I know that we have some listeners uh, uh, who have the voice of reason. What do you think about uh, you know? Here's another one. Here's another one. The great. Remember, we did the um, the live hangout, the Google mm. Plus hangout. That was so great. And uh, one of our our uh, guest commentators was supposed to join us was uh, uh, didn't didn't make it, and hopefully he'll be able to join us later. But he um, sent me this message, and he said, you know, I think we. We need to, or should we uh, consider reviewing Magic Mike? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, Magic Mike. You know, I saw that. Tell me about it, would you? It it was magic. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, you know, it's it's one of those movies you go to for points with the wife. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess that's is it. Why it's I, just the Channing I, Tatum, uh, uh, the angle. That's that's my angle. Yes. No, I can I can say I went. I feel very comfortable with who I See, am. See, the thing is, I didn't. Say, I've been it's... on vacation. I haven't seen it, and and all I know is that I, you know, you know, I'm a fan of the Soderbergh. Mm-hmm. Well, and that was my justification for saying it was okay to go. <laughs> so n- now that you've seen it, 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 did it stand up? 
Well, you know, it's it doesn't scream, hey, Steven Soderbergh made this. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's it's actually a much better film than I ever would have expected it to be. It's certainly no striptease, <laughs> which really which, yeah. uh, was the the version of the strip dancing movie for guys to go and enjoy. Straight well, guys, well for guys to or, go. To go to watch striptease. Yeah, no, I'm just saying you said that they could go enjoy it. And I just said, or they could just go. Or they could just go. Because it was a pretty terrible movie. It was a pretty terrible movie. And what about the other one with the uh, the the girl from the... Uh, from the show with the the like Disney showgirls, <laughs> showgirls, show yeah, yeah. What about that yeah, one? That was that was the other one that was absolutely abysmal. Although in its in its awfulness, it has become a cult classic in some strange way that saddens me a little bit because yeah, it really yeah. is just a terrible, terrible. Movie. It's like a it's a cult you just don't ever want to be a part of. <laughs> That's right. Which is a bad way That's to right. start for a cult because <laughs> you know they're going to be drinking Kool Aid at some point. <laughs> <laughs> watching horrible stripper movies. So if I, if what I'm hearing you say is uh, at the bottom of the list would be Showgirls, and then we would have Striptease, and then Magic Mike. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I guess oh, so. God. <laughs> oh, this is a weird list for us to be putting up on our site, but there's the list, <laughs> the stripper list, the striptease list. Oh, that's Oh, my horrible. God. Goodness gracious me. Well, so anyway, yeah, that's... The- that's the ranking. I, you know, I'm going to throw it out uh, uh, to uh, to Facebook. If you think we should do a whole hour on Magic Mike, <laughs> we're going to do it. Tell us on Facebook. We're going to find a way to to talk about that movie. Uh, so but that that, <laughs> so that, that, that triple will not include strip <laughs> or triple dog dare. Oh. And we'll and find another way to include those. We could do Twenty One Jump Street. Oh, see, do a little yeah. Channing Tatum thing, or we could do a Soderbergh ba- thing. <laughs> battleship. Although battleship? I think we could find better Soderbergh movies to do, <laughs> like <laughs> or, Traffic, uh, Out of Sight. Oh yeah, God, there's so there are Sex a lot of videotape. Oh, Sex Lies and Videotape is a great movie. Yeah. Uh, see, there's so many of them. Why did he did this was this was a moneymaker. He was doing this for the. This was his movie to make money. Who was it who said that? Sometimes you just got to make money. Uh, you're, it you're was the um, our pal uh, <laughs> that we also <laughs> like that we <laughs> John Patrick Shanley. Yes, when John he Patrick when Shanley. he made why he chose to make Congo. Yes, that's <laughs> uh, so imminently forgettable. Oh uh, yes, right. yes. Well, uh, so there are a couple of trailers to talk about. I, I you, uh, okay. The trailers I bring to the table were like uh, just sort of uh, context shock trailers for me. Okay. And then you bring like these wow awesome trailers. <laughs> I bring these like oh here's a little intimate little character piece, and you bring boom, it's a new Wizard of Oz. I, yeah, sorry, I, I did go that way. God, Trump, Trump, <laughs> Queen of Hearts, Trump. I couldn't even find one of yours. What was the first one that you said? Well, I said uh, why stop now? Yeah, I couldn't find that one. That's a new Jesse Maybe Eisenberg. Look hard enough. It's a new uh, Jesse Eisenberg uh, movie where he plays a piano prodigy, uh, dealing with, uh, and he's. It's the day of the big audition. His mom's a recovering drug addict, and from what I gather, uh, he has to go. Um, she doesn't qualify for uh, detox, 
her insurance or something doesn't go out, it, unless she, I, I guess it's unless she comes in high. And so they decide, mother and daughter, or mother and son, that, you know, it's a good idea to go try and buy some drugs so that she can get high and actually go into detox. And it's a madcap adventure leading uh, him to his audition. And uh, I hope she gets some help. And the pleasure of drug use. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And But you know what's, uh, what's in it, uh, who is in it, what is also interesting in it. And this is one of the reasons my two films kind of fit together is because this is a Tracy Morgan uh, film. And he is the drug dealer, and he has a cane, so it's a character piece. Uh, <laughs> oh, and, I see. And so I think it's an, it's actually looks like an interesting film. Uh, Melissa Leo, Tracy Morgan, Jesse Eisenberg, why stop now? Go check out the uh, nice. trailer for that. The uh, next one that I had was, uh, what was the other one that I had? Uh, two, two Nights, days in New York. Uh, two Days in New York. I thought this one sound, looks really interesting, too. Uh, it's uh, Julie Delpy and Chris Rock. Chris Rock is a DJ married to a French girl in New York, and uh, her family comes to town, and her French family, and it turns out they're all crazy. So it's a fish-out-of-water story. And... Uh, what I what I really liked about this, did you watch the trailer? I did. Okay, so close to the end, there is a blurb that actually says, quote, almost as good as vintage Woody Allen. <laughs> I thought, that is critical praise. <laughs> <laughs> or is it... Underhanded critic. Yeah, I actually don't, I don't know, know how to think about that, but it uh, it's uh, Julie Delpy is uh, uh, very cute, and she wrote it and directed it and stars in it. And um, Chris Rock, you know, I I I like the guy. I've always liked the guy, and so this looks like two uh, two interesting movies. They they seem like small movies that are uh, hopefully. Uh, Character-driven comedies that I think, uh, you know, will be good to take the wife to. Better than Magic Mike. That's what I'm going to say. <laughs> and you know, uh, Two Days in New York is Julie Delpy's remake of her film that she wrote and directed um, called Two Days in Paris. No, I did not know that, actually. See, that shows the research that I do for the show. <laughs> yeah, it was it's with her and Adam Goldberg. So it's, it's uh, interesting that she recast Chris Rock for the stateside version of the story. So did you see, uh, have you seen the other story? No, I haven't. I didn't even know that existed until I watched that trailer. Fascinating. And then I found it, so. All right. So now let's so do yours. Go. Tell me yours real quick. Just, well, you know, I, just breeze I, by them. I uh, was quite pleased to see the new trailer for uh, The Great and Powerful Oz, or Oz the Great and Powerful, or whatever. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can't right? even say the, the trailer name correctly. But I, it's, it's Sam Raimi's new movie. And it's coming out next March, and um, which actually makes me a little nervous about it because March is typically a bad time to release movies. Although The Matrix was a March movie, so yeah. Uh, but it's James Franco playing Oz the Great and Powerful, and uh, then we have the three of the of the four witches of Oz. We have Mila Kunis, Rachel Weitz, and Michelle Williams. So. I think it's going to be fun. It looks like uh, quite a wild ride, and so I'm I'm very much looking forward to that. Kind of a prequel, I guess you could say, to uh, the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, and I don't know. I mean, you can you know they're sort of capitalizing on, uh, um, you know, 
wicked. Feels very there's this whole wicked vibe, and word has it that the movie is is being made. Mm, yes, uh, and uh, though I've seen no evidence to the fact, uh, but apparently it's happening. Uh, what is interesting about this one is the the uh, the the writing team behind it. I think that David Lindsay a bear. Uh, is has behind some movies that I really really like, uh, and I know one of your favorites, uh, Rise of the Guardians, where there's a <laughs> crazy weapon wielding Easter Bunny. Yeah, I can't can't go uh, wrong with that. But I uh, I do I, I really enjoyed Inkheart, uh, and Robots is one of our favorites here for the kids around this place. Uh, so, you know, I think it'll be interesting. He has apparently been signed to write the screenplay for the remake of Poltergeist, which was a great, great, great favorite of mine growing up. And uh, so we'll see if... Uh... Does it strike you as odd, though, that in his in his uh, body of work, he wrote Robots, Inkheart, Rise of the Guardians, Oz the Great and Powerful, and Rabbit Hole... <laughs> The story <laughs> with Nicole Kidman and Aaron Eckhart and their child who died in an accident. Yeah. <laughs> How does that fit in? Well, yeah. All I can hear in my head is one of these things is not like the other. <laughs> oh, right. Like... Especially because, you know, he, uh, because apparently he wrote the play mm-hmm. of Rabbit Hole, which, um, you know, means the guy's got a bone for it. He's been thinking about it. It's dark. He's gone dark. For, uh, he's been dark for a long time. That's all I'm saying. I'm gonna feel really bad if I find out like that his child had died and that was his. I'm gonna. I know, and I'm gonna blame. It. I'm gonna blame you. Uh, I'm gonna blame yes, you for yes. that. <laughs> uh, okay, so that's uh, the Oz and Great and It looks. Uh, it looks really uh, beautiful. It's very lush, um, and uh, no, it looks. It looks fantastic. Yeah, it looks just vibrant and just, uh, I mean, you know, it's the Wizard of Oz. It's going to be like Alice in Wonderland, uh, Tim Burton's recent one, taking this magical land in the world of modern cinema where you have all these digital tools and you can just go crazy and just do something really wild and amazing. And, uh, you know, I think it'll be fun. We are talking about a, uh, we're talking about another classic tonight. Classic. Tonight, yes, tonight. And I have to apologize. Last week I said, you know, Nazis. I was I was one war off. You were. This was the Kaiser. I was what was I thinking? It had been a while since I had seen it, so uh Well, and you just sort of assume that movies made in this era, pretty much until we started making movies about the Russians, they were all about the Nazis. The bad guy, if it was a, a movie that dealt with global conflict it was either the nazis or then the russians yeah i mean you know the african queen which is what we're talking about oh, yeah, came out in 1951 say. and it was definitely a period when yeah. there were a lot of uh, war movies coming out and uh yeah it's easy to think of that as uh you know right in with all the other world war ii movies that were out there but no it's actually world war one world war one kaiser this mm-hmm. is a uh, okay. So we're doing this movie. It's a, we're talking about this movie. It's this. It's the second movie in the um, uh, not you the Jack uh, Cardiff yes uh, series. Uh, and you um, 
So uh, you 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 like this guy? Did you watch the documentary? I did. It was a it was an amazing documentary. Um, I, I definitely recommend you know anyone who is interested in in filmmaking uh, to go out and watch the documentary Cameraman about Jack Cardiff. It's uh it's really fascinating. Jack Cardiff is really by many considered the preeminent color cinematographer in the um in in film he started at the beginning i mean i mean he literally started when he was four years old in the silent era as a kind of a an actor and became a uh started working in the camera department in his teens and uh you know shot his first movie with uh michael powell and emmerich pressburger as the cinematographer and never looked back you know he did uh you know shot movies all the way until I mean, he was shooting Rambo First Blood Part Two in the 80s. I mean, you know, he's a busy, busy man. He was still shooting in the 90s. And I mean, he, he passed away in 2009, but he was working pretty much up until his death. Hmm. I, how, how, do you, uh, how do you want to talk about this movie? How do you want to take this movie apart? Because I'm, you know, just in, in kind of reading up on the movie, I'm, I'm really interested in, in the, the production of it because it you know the movie was shot all over the place and 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 the way they had to kind of um, uh, finagle the boat uh, you know to to actually shoot this film uh, you know I don't think we have a, a good concept of just how you know uh, production design has evolved for a movie like this which seems like such an intimate production. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was not. It was. It was very challenging to shoot, and so I'm interested in talking about that. Uh, oh yeah. Per- particularly how the movie was shot, but there are also these these sort of cultural elements that are at, at work in the in the film with Catherine Hepburn and and the uh, ironically rugged Canadian boat captain <laughs> played by Humphrey Bogart, uh, who won an Oscar for his role in this movie. Um, his, uh, you know, there his was one and only. His one and only, which is is also a little bit strange. So, you know, there are a number of things I kind of want to talk about. But how how do you how do you conceive of what is great in this movie? What is it? What is it that you latch on to when when somebody says, "Why do you like this movie?" Well, I, gosh, I mean, it's there's so many things about this film that make it stand out from uh john houston uh and and his uh direction his his script and his direction of it um the performances the the story like you said the story of making the movie um i I mean i think all of that and and just the the nature of the story itself are just all such um, wonderful things to talk about so i mean i think we've got we've got plenty to cover well i say we start Let's should we start with the production of it and, and then get into the film itself? Well, let's do I think we, let's do the other. One. Let's do a very quick uh, plot synopsis for those who haven't seen the movie in a while or haven't seen it at all. Let's just walk through what the movie is is about. Sure. And then we'll talk about Cardiff and, and actually producing the film. Sure. So we've got uh, Rose, a, a, uh, a woman missionary working in Africa in uh German, well, near German-controlled Africa, and then uh, um, the Germans invade and kill everybody in the village, including, uh, they don't really kill her brother, but they may as well have killed her brother. Uh, One of the regulars who passes by is Charlie Allnut, um, this Canadian boater, uh, boat captain who pilots the African queen up and down the river delivering mail and goods and all that stuff. 
She hops on the boat with him since the village has been destroyed. They head down. He's going to take her to uh, somewhere safe. She, uh, he tells her about this, this German boat that's in this lake. And because it's in this lake, nobody else can get through. None of the, the British can get through. And she decides that they should go down with the African queen, make some torpedoes, and blow that boat up to help the, uh, the Brits and uh, to do their part in the war. And, and Charlie reluctantly agrees. They go off on an adventure down the river and in the process fall in love. And they head down and they make it to the lake and they blow the boat up. And uh, yeah, that's the story. Okay. They, they, well, they blow the boat up. <laughs> Ish. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that was uh, soft selling it a little bit. <laughs> yeah. They they tried, failed, and then accidentally blew the boat up. <laughs> <laughs> the African queen, the spirit of the, the spirit boat of the African queen. rises from the lake. <laughs> the cold hand of Poseidon. Uh, okay, so so that's the that's the nut of the movie. It is uh, at, at at its sort of core uh it is a story of these two people Catherine Hepburn and and, um, and Humphrey Bogart uh sort of discovering their their affection for one another over the course of kind of the middle 40 minutes of this movie and the adventures that they they kind of find themselves uh falling into as they as they go down this river it's it's a very episodic story it really it's a great way to put it yeah it's it, i mean and I, I don't know if it's the nature of boat movies but <laughs> <laughs> it reminded me a lot of Apocalypse Now, and I know it's a completely different film, but all I could think about was... It had a jungle, some water. They go from one adventure to the next as they go down the river. Yeah. You know, you've, you've got the rapids, and then you've got the fort, and then you've got the bigger rapids, <laughs> and then the kiss, and then they're in love, and then breakfast in bed, and then you've got the hippos and the baboons... Mm-hmm. And then you've got the boat needs fixing, and then you've got the bugs, and then you've got the 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 marshes and the leeches, and it's like <laughs> it is it it is one right after another, and and but in the course of this, I think what what Houston did that I think is really fairly elegant, in, in particular for 1951, uh, was his this portrayal portrayal of the individual sort of romantic arcs of of Houston and Hepburn. And and what I like so much about it is that we see, uh, you know, as they fall in love, which ends up happening pretty quickly. You know, one episode they're not, and the next episode they really are. Um, they, uh, you know, you see uh, Bogart's affection for her grow as he starts calling her, you know, old girl over and over and over again, which is sort of a uh, um, diminutive uh, sort of, it's a diminutive uh, uh, term of affection, uh, and yet she is portrayed as uh, I don't, I don't know, um, clumsily feminist. Uh, l- like she, she sort of swings back and forth between being this very strong, uh, kind of adaptive uh, individual and uh, into this doe-eyed, uh, sort of young-faced innocent uh who doesn't quite yet know how to handle the relationship which i think for katherine hepburn is the more challenging of the two roles 
and and where they come together is really sort of where the magic is, as both you know, as as Humphrey Bogart is is actually rendered, um, you know, kind of the the clumsy innocent schoolboy uh, on his boat, where you know, and this is this is where a lot of that intertwining kind of relationship drama occurs as they as they fall in love and and discover each other's roles. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, which is it it. It it's really interesting to watch. Like it, it ends up being a really a, a great dynamic, in spite of all the African jungle stuff and the Kaiser. Right. It is. It is. It's it's a very touching story to watch. And actually, it's funny that you mentioned the names they call each other. Uh, I don't know if I've ever seen a film where two characters have called each other by by name or by a name. So often yeah i mean it's like every line oh mr allnut yes yes miss it's like like for the first half of the film all you hear are mr allnut and miss and it's like every line they're saying it and then once they fall in love right and then, yeah. then it's rosie and charlie or dear and or old girl you know, girl old girl which which <laughs> is an interesting like, one wow, they, i they, clearly they only two people on the screen and they can't stop using each other's <laughs> names <laughs> Uh, I uh, that that's a really interesting point. You're you're absolutely right, and it's now and I'm not going to be able to watch this movie the same way uh, again <laughs> because it's that seems so dumb. Uh, but but the real uh, I, I don't know sort of the real issue for her is why she lets him get away with calling her a nickname of a horse. <laughs> like you know that's what you call a horse, old girl, or an old truck, maybe a tractor. Come on, old girl, you can do it. See, I, I thought he was talking about his boat when he was saying "old girl." Maybe I misunderstood. Oh, no. Attention! I'll have to watch oh. it again. Oh, that would change things if I'm wrong about that. Come on, that old change. girl. Come on, old girl. <laughs> I see. That's why I thought that was so weird. Is because it seemed like he should be talking about the boat, but he kept looking at her while he was doing it. <laughs> Anyway, who knows? Who knows? knows? So that's but, you know, the... but the nature of it, though, you're right. It's it's very much a love story, and uh, I mean, really, it's a it's a character piece. It's a character piece where we're watching these two people, almost by themselves for the duration of the film, just the two of them, as they go from experience to experience, not just. Um, on the river, you know, we do see the the experiences on the river, like I was rattling off, but at the same time. You know, we're we're experiencing them on their journey toward in a relationship, right? I mean, right. they start off not really. I, I don't know if they don't like each other, but it's it's not. It's like two people who just aren't the sort of people who normally would get together, right? That right. they shouldn't be sitting at the same table together, uh, right. were it not for her and her brother's great grace in that opening sequence when they're sitting there listening to Bogart's stomach rumble. Right. Uh, which is, you know, you know, to him, something that's just kind of, you know, that happens. And to them is, is something of great offense. Uh, <laughs> and, and yet they are trying, they, they try so hard to be, you know, appropriate and yeah. welcoming, uh, cause you know, he brings their mail and that's, that's the role. He is the, the, the servant to their efforts. You know, he, mm-hmm. he brings a mail and supplies up the river in their missionary work. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so that's, that's the context of their relationship. It's, it's, uh, anyhow, so. But it's, it's interesting, um, metaphorically how their journey down the river is also, it, it, 
is kind of a story of love. And actually, I, I came across this really uh, interesting review on uh, this blog, Let's Not Talk About Movies, where the writer um, who goes by Yojimbo, he, this is, this is a, a great line from it, which I think works. It, it describes it really well. Love is an adventure, exciting but dangerous, making one vulnerable, but whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And at the end of the coasting, carousing, exploding journey, the couple are adrift but floating, no boat underneath them, but operating on their own power, swimming to an unseen shore, laughing without a care. It, to me, it, I mean, it's, it is a story about love, and it's, it's a metaphor of a relationship oh, all the yeah. way through. Yeah, and, and, you know, the part that sticks out for me of, of the passage you just read is that they are, you know, they are adrift but floating under their own power. And that is, a, that is a, an, interesting, um, an interesting twist Mm-hmm. Uh, in the in the script, sort of a uh, kind of an emotional twist when they are on the boat and they are being interrogated, or at least Bogart is being interrogated by the the um, uh, German forces, mm-hmm. uh, and she her boat is is brought up uh, alongside and she gets off. The whole tone changes and they begin uh, to recount with great pride uh, what they have done to to convert the the African queen into this torpedo boat and to talk about what they were going to do but how they failed and yet they were they were so proud of what they had done together and i think that's a that's a twist that that sort of can't be underscored enough because um that's the the punchline to their relationship over the last hour um, mm-hmm. which is we are totally in control whatever happens which in this case they're about to be you know killed by hanging uh, is under their own power, yeah, and and uh, and of their own accord. And I think that's a really that's a powerful um, uh, a, a powerful twist uh, put yeah. in there by by Houston and James Aggie. And that wasn't actually the original end. Um, uh, they had a really tough time coming up with the right end for the script. And actually, um, I, I think, is it James Aggie or James a G? I, I, I wasn't know. sure how to pronounce his name. I kept saying a G. But anyway, he had a heart attack in the middle of working on this script and wasn't able to finish working on it with John Houston, who um, went over to Africa to prep for the shooting. And so uh, uh, John Houston ended up having a couple other people help him, John Collier and Peter Vertel specifically came over to help him um, write the ending. And Peter Vertel actually came over to Africa to, you know, continue uh, while they were shooting and, to, and I think some of the scout and everything. And from his visit of working with John Houston on The African Queen, Peter Vertel went on to write the novel White Hunter Black Heart, mm-hmm. which, of course, was a semi biographical story of John Huston making the African Queen uh, that Clint Eastwood ended up making as a movie in, in 1990. So right. it's interesting how that all played out. But Peter Vertel and John Huston were actually the two who came up with the happy ending. And it was different from the way the book ended. And and the author, C.S. Forrester, never was happy with the ending. He, want, he always wanted with, a different With his ending. own ending? Yeah, he was never happy with his so, own. He so, how did had, the original? How did the his? How did the book end? I mean, I haven't. It, I haven't it was. Read the it, book. They died. They died. Um, 
and my understanding is there were actually two endings to the book, one in the British release of the novel and one in the American release of the novel. And C.S. Forrester was unhappy with both of them. He didn't like either. And uh, uh, he told John Huston that. And so John Huston and, uh, and Sam Spiegel, the producer on the film, uh, really felt that they needed a happy ending for this film. And John Huston agreed, and that's why he brought Peter Vertel over. And they came up with the ending as it is. And I think it's a great ending because in this uh, metaphorical relationship that we're watching of, of you know, the, the relationship as a boat journey and the whole ending, everything you just described, how the two of them decide to take all of it you know, and, and own it, right? Mm-hmm. That becomes so powerful. And, and then the fact that the African queen um, you know, ends up being the victor, it's like love conquers all in, in a way. You know, it's, it's, I think it's a beautiful story. And the way that they chose to end it, I think, was, was so smart. And, uh, and it was the right ending. Well, yeah, I, I wonder. I mean, when you look at, at um, what they build up over, the, over the, the, the middle of the movie, they're building toward they're building toward that lesson, right? Why the story makes is, is so powerful for us, kind of why it, why it speaks to us as, as almost comical as the end is you, the, the sort of comical escape, which, mm-hmm. you know, which is only comical when you, when you, by comparison, when you sort of leave, you know, talk about Joe versus the volcano, which is kind of a similar thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Indiana Jones or Raiders of the Lost Ark, I should say, it's kind of a similar thing. Um, you you're working towards some sort of a lesson and you have to ask yourself as you're as you're telling that story which is more powerful the 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 lesson that comes from loss or the lesson that comes from from uh life you know uh and 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 what are you going to learn more from and i think in this case uh boy i I totally agree it seems like it would have been a a real kick in the gut uh and and i'm not sure you know how how you would how one would recover uh, yeah. From from after the tone, because the tone of the film is is so positive. You know, every every one of the episodes always ends with sort of a positive smile, kind of a thing. I don't know. I don't know how you how you uh, wouldn't change well, and, that. And actually, to to that point, though, I, I I you know I think part of the reason that John Huston felt it needed that positive ending was because once he had cast Huston and Hepburn, I mean <laughs> Bogart and Hepburn. And he had them in the film, and they and he saw the magic that they were creating, and this fun that they were having, yeah. and the energy and all that. He realized, and I think you know, both he and Sam Spiegel realized, we can't kill these two. We cannot. Right. It's it's right. so it's it's going to be um, we're going to be cheating our audience if we kill these people. Yeah, yeah. This is that's that's what you know. It's it's sort of an illustration of the organic process. Yeah. Of, of just sort of being responsive to what what's going on in the story, and I think and 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 the portrayal of the story, and I think it's more powerful as a result. Yeah. Um, so okay, so production of this thing. This this, this is what <laughs> struck me, right? That that you know they're shooting. Uh, first, you're going to have to talk about these cameras uh, because that's that's one of the things <laughs> that really struck me is that they're they're shooting on this you know on this float. This flotilla with the with the stage of boat on top of it, right? And they're having to jump through some pretty significant hoops to actually shoot this little movie. Yeah, well, and that's that's once they were shooting. I mean, well, there's plenty of of pre production <laughs> stories before we even get to this. But yeah, I mean, the production of this because they're filming on this little tiny boat. I mean, it was it was 
I can't remember how long the actual boat uh, of the African Queen went. It, it was like, you know, 20 feet long or something. It's not a big boat. And you can see that when you're watching the film. So that you're right. They had the boat. They had a mock-up kind of half of the boat on this on this big float where they could put the lights and they could put the camera and all of the crew could be there. And that way they could be getting the close-ups of the actors. They had behind that, they had like a wardrobe and then, you know, this whole string of all these boats that were kind of floating down the river all tied together. And at the very last one, they had Catherine Hepburn's, she had her own private loo because she, she, it was contractually, you know, agreed upon that she had her own private loo for the film, which of course, in one part, it actually got stuck in the brambles uh, along this <laughs> little tiny river they were filming and they had to cut it loose because they were stuck and, and she was furious because she had to go use the jungle like everyone else. Oh, my. Oh, Catherine. <laughs> so it was a very... Uh, I mean, just that. And then the river itself. John Houston flew over to Africa. He really wanted to go to Africa. He, he, it's, it was like a dream of his to go to Africa, particularly because he really wanted to kill an elephant, um, mm -hmm. which is funny because he never actually did kill an elephant. And later in his life, he had a change of heart on that whole opinion and realized that killing an elephant would be a sin. And he decided that it was a wrong, he was foolish when he was young and, you know, he's glad he never actually did kill an elephant. But that was one of the reasons he went. Mm -hmm. And he, so he was flying around scouting and, and they had this great, gorgeous big river, but he decided it's too beautiful, it's too big, we need a smaller river. So he, they kept scouting until they found this little dinky river that was so compact it had all of the jungle just overgrowing on all sides and that was the river that he picked and it was this, this tiny river that they had to get this huge chain of boats down and they what they would do is they would run the boats all the way up the river they would turn them around and then they would just float down all day long filming scenes and then the next day they would run the boat up to the top of the river again and they would float down filming scenes again I mean, oh, what a process. And and this was with the Technicolor camera. Well, that's what I wanted to hear about because that thing yeah. that that we've what we started talking about last week with the red shoes is is the idea that this equipment was not simple equipment. This wasn't uh, you know, you, you start to lose touch with the the production process when you can shoot with cameras that fit in the palm of your hand and and get, you know, 4K uh cinema quality footage. Yeah, people today don't realize what a, a film camera was back then, especially these Technicolor ones. I mean, they were huge. And not only was the camera itself huge. I mean, you know, okay, first of all, the Technicolor camera, like I said last week, it had three strips of film running in it. So it had to house three full strips of film. Um, so, And I am assuming that they were 1,000-foot rolls like well, they are. I was just going to ask that. So what does a 1,000 feet get you? Before it, it's like... 11 minutes or something like that. Okay, so for a day of shooting, uh, 11 minutes per reel, you have an awful lot of film it's, on it's a, a lot boat. Yeah, and that's <laughs> just the camera. And then, because the cameras were so loud, they had to have a blimp, which was this giant thing that went around the camera that silenced it, basically. So when they were rolling sound, you wouldn't hear the tick 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 of the camera. So oh these goodness. things were huge. And so a shot 
like the the magical shot in this film, which I think is just it's so um, it's 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 heart wrenching when you see the two of them completely just having given up. They're in the boat, stuck in the mud in the marshes, and they've basically kind of resigned themselves to death almost. And then and then Rose has that beautiful prayer, and then the camera pulls up from them stuck on the African queen in the mud it pulls up through the marshes and then it tilts up and you see that just on the other side of the boat is the river and the lake and it's a gorgeous shot and it's just it's so it it breaks your heart when you see that they're so close and they just have no idea and the way they got that shot they had a barge that they were on when they were filming that scene they devised this ramp basically coming off the barge that ran down to the African queen. They had the camera on a dolly on this ramp and they had virtually every crew member who was not working holding a rope that held that was on the end of this this dolly. And when they called action, everybody did a heave ho and they pulled this giant rig up this ramp so that the the uh, so Jack Cardiff shooting could get this shot and could tilt up just at the right moment to get that shot. Now today that sort of shot is is like you know s- almost standard in any project. You can get a techno crane with a great operator and they can make a shot like that in a heartbeat. But back in the day, this was this was the invention of that sort of shot. And it's just amazing that these people were coming up with all of these things to make these things happen. And it's a beautiful shot. And when you see that and you realize the amount of work it took to get that and that that's where modern cinematography is coming from, it just gives you so much appreciation for what they did back then. Oh, it really does. It really does. I'm just watching that. that but again, it's, it is fascinatingly stable. Uh, this sort of human powered, uh, this human powered crane shot is is just beautiful. Yeah, it it is. It's it's remarkably stable. There's no bumps or hitches or anything. It just kind of comes up and tilts up and gives gives you the reveal. The music has that beautiful uh, the beautiful uh, swell in it, mm-hmm. and it's just it's just it really is just a, a gorgeous thing. And it's it's the sort of thing that you see in a movie that you don't even notice sometimes because you're so caught up in the story. And I think that's what happens so often when you're watching these films, especially now watching films back from that era. And you just, those sorts of things you just gloss over. You don't even notice that it happened, but there was so much work to go into those sorts of shots. The, the, you know, it's a, that same sort of corollary we talked about with, um, uh, you know, in the, the, inverted benjamin button series you know talking about panic room and the shot through the you know the shots through the the floor and through the mm-hmm. cup handle i mean those sorts of things if you're if you're into the story you don't see it but those are you know these are those shots that define the next generation of filmmakers work yeah uh, and and this is this is one of those movies where it starts yeah yeah very true so there we are. Where you know what what was interesting? I, I what do you want to talk about more production? I have a question for you. It's on the it's question. on the restoration. Uh, oh sure. So in in what was it two thousand nine? Uh, I believe they did a, a restoration of the film. Mm-hmm. So when they're going through this re- restoration process, you notice especially, and I'm I you know I made mental note of it as I was watching the film, but 
um, I'm seeing it right now. There are some establishing shots right after that crane shot uh, of Africa raining. And while most of the film looks good, these are some obvious shots that were not, it's like they were not restored. Does that make sense? Did you notice that? Am I crazy? I, I think just a lot shots... of sh- uh, of film shutter and the color is not great and I I think the shots were restored but it, I mean they can only restore it as good as it was actually captured and and to some extent they can only restore it as good as the film has survived up to this point there may be some shots that where they just couldn't find a quality uh, take and I don't recall um, anything in particular that 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 uh, stood out to me, but it doesn't mean that there's not some, some shots in there that just didn't work out as well as others. I would, I would submit that they didn't, they, they just didn't go far enough along the full Lucas and probably we need some CGI. <laughs> oh, I'd like some, some replacement hippos. <laughs> yeah. I think that's, that's one of the, the funniest parts is when, when you have a bogey doing all the impressions. <laughs> Doing the, the monkeys with, and the, with the clearly added in sounds. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was great. That was great. So, um, okay. what was I going to say about that? Oh, but one thing actually about the restoration that actually I do, I do think it makes it stand out a bit. There were a number of shots that were actually shot on a, a green screen. Yeah. Oh, and, yes. Yeah. And those actually stand out. Well, it's it's funny. They stand out more, but at the same time, if you see what it looked like beforehand, while while I say it, they stand out more. They actually stand out. They they're they're noticeable, but they're not as badly done as they were back then because they didn't have the technology to really create a clean a clean grease green screen shot. And if you see some of the originals, I mean, they had like the actors had halos of green around their hair. I mean, it was just really not good. Now it looks a lot better, but it's still clearly right uh, obvious that the actors are not actually in a particular location. Well, and that was that was one thing I wanted to to have you talk about, which was this, uh, which was the actual. Um, uh, geographic production schedule, right? Um, they shot this movie in Africa. They also shot in, what did I say, Tunisia uh, and in the UK. Mm-hmm. And uh, so how did, how did they end up splitting that up? Uh, well, I think there were a big reason that they came to the UK is anything that took place in the water, like with them underneath, under the boat right. trying to fix the, fix the, um, the axle and whatever had broken under there, um, anything where they're swimming, any of that stuff, they could not shoot that in Africa because they there was just too many dangers in the water, whether it be crocodiles or diseases, whatever it was, hippos, they couldn't put the actors at risk and so they didn't go in the water. So all of the water stuff was filmed in England. And then on top of that, because of the water, they actually had a problem with the filter on the boat. Everybody started getting sick. They started getting dysentery and just horribly ill. They said everybody on the crew had just had the runs and it was just a miserable experience for everybody. They're all throwing up except for Bogey and John Houston because they didn't drink water. They only drank whiskey. 
apparently. (laughs) So, but everybody else was just horribly ill, including Catherine Hepburn. In fact, the scene at the beginning where she's playing the piano. She looks sick. They had a bucket next to her. So between takes, she kept throwing up. So, uh, so everybody was so sick. She got so ill that they just had to, had to go back to England. And so some of the last few things, some of the conversations, um, they just had to end up filming back there and, and all of the stuff with the other actors, like her brother, um, played by, I believe John Morley and, um, the, Um, well, and Germans, Germans, Germans were actually, all of that stuff was filmed back in England. Um, so, uh, yeah, everybody was able to get better and they, they finished it off there. But, um, yeah, it was quite an ordeal. A lot of, uh, a lot of illnesses they had, um, you know, their camp was attacked by army ants, uh, or, and, uh, you know, they had to, you know, they had, they basically had kerosene, um, troughs around the whole place. And so as soon as these ants started attacking, they would light up the kerosene and burn all the ants. And it's just like crazy, crazy <laughs> experience of making this movie. So, Oh goodness. Uh, I, I have to, I have to read. I, John Houston has a great autobiography called an open book. And I have to just read this, um, passage from, <laughs> from his book he scouted, he came to Africa early to scout for this film. Again, he really wanted to kill an elephant. He just wanted to get out. And, you know, he's an adventurer. John Houston kind of defines that type of man who really just wants to travel the world and have adventures, right? So he's in Africa. He's scouting. They find this village where they think they're going to make their movie. And they start building the compound where all of the actors and crew are going to live. While they're there, the chief um, brings on this guy to help them um, be the hunter, basically. Find the food so that these guys can be fed. So this is a a brief little passage uh, from John Huston's book. There were eight to ten of us in this first group. We didn't have our commissary set up yet, so we contracted with a black hunter to shoot for the pot. I went out with him several times. He only had a muzzle loader, and he couldn't hit anything unless he was right on top of it. Game was scarce, and I wondered how in the hell he could manage to shoot enough meat for the pot, which was kept going constantly. The pot consisted of an indiscriminate sort of stew comprised of monkey, forest pig, deer, and you name it. Eventually, someone did. One afternoon, a group of soldiers marched into camp and arrested our black hunter. We weren't told why. They refused to tell us. But finally, King Paul, the black chief of the area, confided to me that villagers had been disappearing mysteriously. It seemed that when the hunter couldn't find game for the pot, he got the meat in the simplest possible way. I must say, I couldn't tell the difference in the taste. (laughs) The black hunter was executed a few days later. I was thankful that the, quote, long pig, unquote, was served before the main group arrived. Only a few of us were privileged to dine so exclusively. (laughs) Oh, goodness. <laughs> Can you believe it? <laughs> That's fantastic. Oh, this is uh, filmmaking in the 50s for you. <laughs> That's what it is. You know what? I Here's the thing. I think those involved in the business aren't doing a good enough job making it harder on themselves <laughs> than they, they need to. We need to work to make things hard, more challenging. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Uh, well, this is, uh, so this film, um, is John Huston. 
Yeah. This is a, so we we this was we did a very brief sort of uh, Cardiff series, and this is a big transition from Cardiff to John Huston. We're going to do a couple of, of Huston films, and and so this movie falls sort of in the in the middle of the early period of his career. Uh, he, you know, he'd been making movies for ten years. He'd written a bunch prior to that, uh, and and uh, how do you feel like this film fits in his canon? Boy, that's a that's a good question. You know, he I think he directed about thirty nine films. Um, uh, he wrote a, fewer than that, and he acted in a good number. But I don't know if I've seen enough of his films to really judge. But the films I've seen, I, I think I've seen pretty much all of his big films: Maltese Falcon, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, Key Largo, Asphalt Jungle, African Queen, Moby Dick. Um, all the way up through uh, Pritzi's Honor and The Dead, and of course Annie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, you know, he, he is a filmmaker who tells big stories, um, and and seems to tell stories about kind of tough people having tough times. And and African Queen, while you know it does have a happy ending, it definitely still has that sort of. Uh, that feel to it, you know, uh, Charlie Allnut certainly doesn't seem like, you know, uh, an upstanding guy. He definitely seems like the sort of guy who might is probably a little down on his luck, you know, and uh, just the, the types of films that John Huston chose to make, I think, really strike me as just um, really good portrayals of character you know he, he he really was fascinated by characters and and uh and just told great stories about them you know i i, I guess that's what i would have to say about him yeah he's um i, I think he's I guess I, the only thing I would add to that is that he is a, a guy who has a, a really fascinating uh, ability to um present the the darker side of of people in a way that's really pretty approachable mm -hmm. you know and you so it's funny that we would open the the show talking about the coen brothers i think the coen brothers have an interesting kind of ability to do that too and and you know i see a lot of a, a sort of character lineage in in those um uh, in in uh, that connects the two as filmmakers and and um plus uh you know houston is I, I think probably best known to me as Gandalf, and I, I think we have to have to say that out loud. Uh, before there was Ian McKellen, people there was Ralph Bakshi's Hobbit and uh, and Lord of the Rings, and uh, yeah, that's how Houston. Yeah, it was Houston's Gandalf. That's right. How he this... would have been if he were alive, like oh. his like. About you know the the mid seventies when he was like in Chinatown, yeah, that would have been a great Gandalf if they were making totally live Are action you, back then. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. Oh, I I that's oh, I dream about that. <laughs> I don't know if you I I we're, I'm reading it to my daughter right now. The Lord of the Rings, the whole thing. Oh, wonderful. And and uh, Worm Tongue just threw the Palantir off the out of the mm -hmm. or thing, and all I can hear is John Huston. 
anyway, uh, so this movie did pretty well um, in for 1951. Do you have your secret numbers uh, or or I this was tar- tough to find? It, it was pretty tough to find, but I did see that it made about um, almost eleven million dollars in uh, domestically in, and this was nineteen fifty one, fifty two, nineteen fifty one, fifty two dollars. So uh, you know, it did pretty well. It it was a huge success. I mean, everybody loved it, and it's funny because you know they were. Um, I, I think there was a little concern when the story was getting made. It was hard for them to get financed because. Um, it was it was this story about this older couple floating down a boat in Africa. And none who's of, interested in that? None of the studios <laughs> wanted it. If you'll notice when you watch the credits, none of the studios, there's no studio logo. It's it's Sam Spiegel, it's it's Romulus, it who is a it was a two, a production company of two brothers. Right. And um and they financed it. They made they they said, "Let's go make this in Africa. Let's do it." And and they released it, and they made a ton of money. And John Huston, he was actually a little afraid of Sam Spiegel. He had heard some stories about Sam Spiegel and some of his shady dealings, and he was told by a friend that um, he should get out of his deal on the African Queen because it would it will it will bite him in the end. And he did, and he said that was the best intention but worst advice that he ever took because if he had not backed out of his deal from the African Queen with Sam Spiegel, he would have made tons of money on it. But Sam Spiegel walked away with all of it. Yeah. <laughs> oh. So. Beautiful. Uh, what do you, uh, how do you uh, wrap it up? Well, do you have I, closing I, words? I, I, you know, just last thing, you know, I think tying into our little, um, uh, our little Bogart that we had talked about before. I, I think, like we said, this was the one time that Humphrey Bogart won an Oscar. Uh, he had been nominated before for Casablanca. He had been nominated afterward for the Kane Mutiny. But um, this was the only time that he won. It was a, a fantastic character for him to play. Um, you know, personally, I think that that he should have been nominated for Treasure of the Sierra Madre. I think he's just amazing in that. Mm-hmm. But that being said, I think it's great that he won for this. It's a great character. Charlie Allnut's great. Rose is a fantastic character for Catherine Hepburn. This is just one of those movies that it's it's just such a fantastically simple, um, beautiful film. It's one that. I think you could watch with kids. Uh, I mean, I guess once they kind of understand war and stuff like that. But I mean, it's just there's nothing in this that that is offensive. It's just a, a simple story, and it's beautiful with great characters, and it's definitely one that everybody should check out. I absolutely agree. I think this is a movie that presents uh, sort of the culture of relationships, and and at a time when. Uh, when I think we were learning how to be in relationships with one another. And it does so by putting these two people in this wonderfully uh, uh, wild uh, setting uh, and, and peels back the layers of how these, these two people learn how to kind of fall in love and be with one another. And I think it does it in a very sweet kind of a way. And in spite of the fact that it, you know, it is a movie uh, in the, the master setting of, of a war that ends up being a, a fairly minor player in the in in the real sort of sentiment of the film, and I think it's a it is a, a terrific movie, and I'm I'm glad we got to it on this uh, on our list. Definitely, is is one well worth talking about. Where where do we go next week? We're going to continue with our John Huston conversation. 
Um, are we? Uh, no, we're not. Maybe we are. Or are we? <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Did I did I miss a memo? I, I thought our next series was uh the Born series. Are we ready to start that already? Yeah. Oh yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, I'm right there. John, John Houston, our John Houston series. Will continue. Anytime you listen to a John Houston episode, it's likely going to be one of our episodes when we've been unable to get together to record an episode. Why are you telling the secrets? Oh, I'm going to tell more. I'm going to tell more of your secrets. <laughs> this is uh, that's like pulling back that? the curtain. <laughs> well, go ahead, talk. Mr. Oz. We did have Oz. See, I'm just tying it all together again, <laughs> right? It's. It, <laughs> You gotta bring it back in. It's all about. Oh, you did. Yep. Oh, you brought it in. Oh, brought it I brought in tight. Some, I brought. I brought something. You brought in. something in. So is your face. Ouch. So I don't even know. I'm, I'm reading kids' books tomorrow. That's all I got. Good talk. <laughs> Sayonara. Sayonara.